Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. Happy Taboo Tuesday. Today, we're going to get heavy real quick. We're talking family annihilation. I finished listening to Broken Hearts, and I'm convinced that was family annihilation. But we'll see in a few months when the officials release their report findings. It's my opinion that knowing the abuse would be uncovered and the charade was over, Jen and or Sarah decided to end it all for everyone. Allegedly, in my opinion, don't sue me. Maybe that will be my new tagline. Thanks for listening and don't sue me. Okay, grab a drink and let's get into it. Family Annihilation. Familiacide is a type of murder or murder-suicide in which a perpetrator kills multiple close family members in quick succession, most often children, relatives, spouse, siblings, or parents. In half the cases, the killer then kills themselves in a murder-suicide. If only the parents are killed, the case may also be referred to as parricide. Where all members of a family are killed, the crime may be referred to as family annihilation. And that's what I want to focus on today. This concept has always been terrifying and fascinating. Straight schadenfreude. In my opinion, the Hart family is the first mainstream family annihilation carried out by a woman within the 24-7 news cycle. Family annihilation is a very specific form of mass murder and has almost exclusively been attributed to men. Now, I know that it's pure speculation at this point, so I'll say that this is my theory and allegedly because those are the magic words so that you can say whatever you want. I'm kidding. But I do think Sarah and or Jen Hart killed their family. Why? That's always the question when someone is murdered. It's so senseless. And in cases like the Hart's, the senselessness is magnified. Oh, and because some people are having a hard time finding the links to my sources, I've used, um, I've pulled from Wired, Wikipedia, and Ranker for this episode, but it's largely um, written by me. So a study has been published that analyzes three decades of criminal criminal, criminal records of British murder cases, drawing up psychological profiles of the four types of men who kill members of their own families. Quote, family annihilators have received little attention as a separate category of killers, said Professor David Wilson. Newspaper articles from 1980 to 2012 were used to find and analyze cases for the study. It is published in the Howard Journal, um, Howard Journal of Criminal Justice, in case you are interested. Of the 71 family annihilators identified for the study, 59 of them were male and 55% of them were in their 30s when they committed the crime. Looking at you, Chris Watts. The frequency with which these kind of murder cases are occurring is also increasing, the study found. Over half of the murders that were identified took place in the first part of the 21st century. So uh, that would be between 2000 and 2010. Quote, I usually deal with murder and serial murder, but this was a very dark place to go, Wilson tells. Wired, so-called ordinary men who were loving husbands and fathers could do quite extraordinarily appalling things to their partners, ex-partners, and their children. Family annihilators were overwhelmingly not known to criminal justice or mental health services. For all intents and purposes, the these were loving husbands and good fathers, often holding down high-profile jobs and seen publicly as being very, very successful, said Professor David Wilson. 
Family breakup, including related issues such as access to children, was the most common cause for family murders, followed by financial troubles, honor killings, and mental illness. 81% of men who killed members of their family attempted to kill themselves afterward. People who are murdered usually have some kind of existing relationship with their murderer, Wilson says, but those who committed family annihilation were in no way typical murderers. What's interesting and different about this category of murderer is that those typical murderers will be well known to the criminal justice system, they'll have a criminal record, or they'll be known to the mental health services or drug counselors. Not the case for the family annihilator. There are four types of family annihilators. Examining all the cases led to the identification of four distinct characteristics that drove the murderer, which helps to dismantle the common myth that family killings are motivated either by revenge or altruism. Self-righteous killers hold the mother responsible for the breakdown of the family and will often call her before to explain what he is about to do. Disappointed killers believe their family has let them down and the killing could be sparked by something like children not choosing to follow religious customs. Anomic killers see the family as a symbol of their own economic success, but if they suffer some kind of economic failure, bankruptcy for example, the family no longer serves this function. Paranoid killers are often motivated by a desire to protect their family from a perceived threat, such as having children taken away by social services. Most family annihilators fell into the self-righteous or anomic, or is that supposed to be anemic? Anomic categories, says Wilson. And those who were self-righteous were often hysteronic and dramatic, choosing significant dates, such as Father's Day, to commit their crimes. It's clear that it's men that usually resort to this type of violence, and these four characteristics are closely related to a man's ideas about gender roles and his place within the family, says Wilson. There are a variety of ways for men to be men, but really is happening with the family annihilation is that these are usually men who will reach a tipping point about various things within the particular category of family annihilator that we identify. To see it simply as being about women having a greater role in modern society might be trying to imply the woman is responsible, whereas in fact it's always about the man. It was important to make the research about male family annihilators available this month, says Wilson, as men are most likely to commit these acts during August, with 20% of cases occurring within this period, and my story's bear that out too. That's crazy. The next step is to further um, research into uh, what motivated the 12 women who killed members of their family. We don't simply want to fit the women into the four categories we've identified for men, he says. We want to see what differences there are rather than simply go, oh, look, this woman fits the pattern and so forth, end quote. So let's keep those factors in mind when we go over a few high-profile family annihilators. This particular case happened in my home state not that long ago, so I had to include it. It's presumed that the main reason for the snap in this case is financial loss. This horrific 
story made national headlines when the family of five was found dead in their Lake Minnetonka mansion. If you're not familiar with the real estate of Minnesota, Lake Minnetonka is the most expensive lake one can buy real estate on. Brian Short shot and killed his wife and their three children last fall before turning the gun on himself. So this was in 2015, I believe. After Brian didn't report to work, a a co-worker called 911, um, and then Sergeant Jim Williams of the South Lake Minnetonka Police Department was dispatched to the scene. A co-worker, quote, this is from Williams, a co-worker had called and said that Brian hadn't shown up for work, Williams said. The caller said his kids also hadn't shown up at school. Quote, he had recently inquired about life insurance policies, death benefits, suicide clause, things like that, Williams said. With all of that information going into the call, that made it different than a typical welfare check. Williams had no idea just how different. He remembers walking through an unlocked back door of the Greenwood home. It's also known Lake Minnetonka. Horrific, he said. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. He first found the body of Brian Short's wife, Karen, in her bedroom next to a cordless phone. I was also terrified, William said, because I knew there were kids that were missing, that I didn't know where they were, and I was afraid of what I was going to find next. 17-year-old Cole, 15-year-old Madison, and 14-year-old Brooklyn were all dead in their own beds. Their dad had killed himself in the garage. Detective Mike O'Keefe worked the case from day one. It took its toll on everybody, he said. But it's what didn't stand out that still haunts the 14-person police department of South Lake Minnetonka, which is, it's still like a, it feels small town, even though it isn't. It just seemed to be a normal home, O'Keefe said. A school bag and clothes lined up for the first day of school. Those are the things that seem to have a lasting impression, especially on me. O'Keefe led the investigation um, into trying to find answers, sifting through emails, legal documents, and several home safes. An interview with Brian Short's office manager became perhaps the most telling piece of all. Brian Short had founded allnurses.com, a social media website for nurses more than 20 years ago. His office manager told police she handled all of the company's and the Short's personal bills. Earlier that summer, Brian Short asked to get up to speed. She said that's when he first learned what it costs to run his company and his lifestyle, including paying quarterly taxes of over $200,000. His colleagues said concerns over steep revenue cuts and a large defamation lawsuit against him, uh, against his company led to severe anxiety. He began seeing a therapist and was prescribed medication. A neighbor told police just before, um, excuse me, just days before his death that Brian Short made a hand gesture in the shape of a gun, put it to his head and said, it's just overwhelming. Oh, we need to stop making jokes like that. Despite evidence of financial and mental health issues, South Lake Minnetonka police could never establish a clear motive. Okay, read between the lines. Investigators closed the case around Christmas time. So this was end of August or early September. I can't remember. So that jives. I don't know why August is the most common month. That's crazy. Going back to school, it's so hot. I don't know. Unfortunately, we're never going to know. The series of events that happened at that residence, we're never going to have a clear understanding of why, O'Keefe said. Yeah. As a father himself, O'Keefe admits his personal struggle has been focused on his feelings about Brian Short. 
They don't know the side of him that I saw, and I don't know the side of him that they saw, O'Keefe said. He's not a monster, even though it was a monstrous act that we saw happen in this house. He was a completely different person to them. A snow-covered teddy bear is the only sign of what happened in the short house five months ago. As police can now only hope others will hear this message if they sense trouble in their own families. If you notice something in yourself or a loved one that is different, then you need to talk about it, O'Keefe said. People need to talk to somebody. In a statement from Karen's sister, Kelly Willem, she said they're focused on coping and working through their grief. Quote, I think it has been talked about enough in that all who knew them knew they were a beautiful family and no one would have imagined in a million years that this could or would happen, the statement said. Even given all of the information I personally or anyone else knows, we will never truly have a definitive answer as to how or why this could happen. It's beyond bewildering. I search for answers continually. At some point, I will be pursuing avenues regarding more research into possible causes with hopes of opportunities for prevention. Our prayer and deepest hope is for this to never happen to anyone else ever again. The South Lake Minnetonka Police Department did go through a debriefing session with its officers after this happened. Looking back, the department believes some officers likely needed more help and they plan to offer more help to first responders in the future. What quality podcast would have an episode on family annihilators without talking about the piece of shit that is Chris Watts? When Chris Watts's pregnant wife, Shannon, and their two young daughters disappeared in August of 2018, news crews arrived at their home to interview the man who, by all predictions, should have been a distraught and emotional mess. However, he strangely was aloof and quote, cavalier in his attitude, as some news outlets reported, and that immediately raised suspicions. Though for several days, Watts stuck to his story that his wife had returned home from a business trip then promptly disappeared with their children. He admitted they'd had an emotional conversation the night before she left, but claimed it was nothing more. He even went as far as to tell an officer, I couldn't sleep at all last night, and that he missed them, my children, throwing chicken nuggets at me, honestly, last night, hours after he murdered them. Oh my god. Further investigation. So, with the help of the FBI, uh, they revealed what are believed to be female bodies on an oil field outside of Denver where Chris Watts worked. Records showed the family was deeply in debt as well, having declared bankruptcy a few years prior to the alleged murders. The week after the television interview, when Watts's father flew to town allegedly to con- uh, comfort Watts, he reportedly convinced his son to turn himself into the authorities. Watts made a complete confession on August 16th, 2018. Oh, my baby boy's birthday. He was charged with three counts of murder and awaits sentencing. On November 6, 2018, Watts pleaded guilty to nine charges. In exchange for his guilty plea, he was spared the death penalty. On November 19, 2018, he was sentenced to five life sentences, three consecutive and two concurrent with no com- with no parole. The piece of shit then went on to say that he came home 
saw his wife that had murdered their two daughters and then he went into a rage and he killed his pregnant wife. I call bullshit. According to law enforcement, on April 10th, 2001, 39-year-old Navy veteran Robert William Fisher shot his wife in the head, cut her throat, and then slashed the throats of his 10-year-old son and 13-year-old daughter. After murdering his wife and children, Fisher set the family Scottsdale, Arizona home on fire, fleeing the house before a natural gas line caused a massive explosion. Once firefighters extinguished the blaze, they found the bodies of Fisher's family inside the home and quickly discerned the woman and two children had been murdered. Guys, lighting shit on fire isn't going to cover anything up. You need to fucking like roast a body at like 1200 degrees for hours and hours. I'm not giving you a how-to. It's just fucking like obvious. Have you ever watched Forensic Files? Come on. So shortly after the killings, police uh, named Fisher as a suspect in the murders, believing he had committed familiacide because he thought his wife was planning to leave him and he didn't want to subject his children to the stress of divorce. What a nice dad. I'll just kill him. Fisher, an experienced hunter and outdoorsman, has never been found and the authorities suspect he may have committed suicide or started a a new life with a different identity. In 2015, the FBI released multiple age-progressed photos showing what the fugitive may look like today, and they are offering a $100,000 reward for tips leading to the arrest of this wanted man. So go to the um, FBI website and check out Robert William Fisher in the event you can catch this piece of shit and be rewarded with $100,000 while you're at it. Now with a heavy hitter, as the last podcast on the left guys would say, John List. On November 9th, 1971, 46-year-old accountant John List killed his two teenage sons, his teenage daughter, his wife, and his mother in their Westfield, New Jersey mansion using a revolver and a semi-automatic handgun to coldly end their lives. After murdering his entire family, List left the house to start a new life with a different identity. Because the middle-aged accountant had planned the killings well in advance— Canceling services to the home and telling employers and schools the family was going on an extended vacation, the dead bodies of his mother, wife, and three children weren't discovered for almost an entire month. List had left behind a letter in which he claimed he had killed his family because of financial problems and a sense that his children were becoming immoral and less religious. For nearly two decades, the mass murderer evaded police until the case was featured on a 1989 episode of America's Most Wanted. The segment about the killings included an age-progressed bust of List that had been created by a forensic sculptor, and one of the fugitive's acquaintances recognized him and called in a tip that led to his arrest. In April 1990, List was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder, and he was given five consecutive life sentences for the killings. While in prison custody, List died on March 21, 2008, at the age of 82. On the evening of March 23, 2008, Easter Sunday, 42-year-old Stephen Sapel murdered his wife and their four adopted children, who ranged in age from 3 to 10. He beat them to death with a baseball bat. The next morning, he called the police and asked law enforcement to come to his Iowa City home. Then the middle-aged former banker left his house and minutes later ended his life by crashing his vehicle into a concrete barrier.
After killing his entire family and himself, investigators discovered that he had been indicted a month earlier on charges that he'd embezzled more than half a million dollars from his former employer, an Iowa bank where he'd worked as controller and vice president. While Supple had pleaded not guilty to charges of embezzlement and money laundering, he told investigators he'd stolen hundreds of thousands of dollars from the bank over the course of several years. The Supples were devout Catholics, and all six members of the family were given a joint Catholic funeral, including Stephen, which caused a great deal of controversy in the religious community because he'd murdered his wife, children, and himself. No fucking shit. All right, another August one coming up. Christopher Foster, on August 26, 2008, the 49-year-old British businessman murdered his wife and teenage daughter, shooting them and the family's many dogs and horses to death before pouring 200 gallons of oil all over his mansion in, oh gosh, Shropshire, England. After setting the home on fire, he climbed into bed next to his dead wife and he eventually died from smoke inhalation. Security cameras posted around the property captured the tragedy, allowing law enforcement to learn exactly how Foster killed his wife, daughter, and himself. An investigation after the familial side also revealed why Foster, who lived in an opulent home worth well over a million dollars, committed murder, suicide, and arson. While Foster had made millions by developing materials for the oil industry, he spent his fortune recklessly purchasing material items like expensive sports cars simply to keep up appearances. When his business um, began to fail, creditors started threatening to repossess his assets, including his costly family home. Officials believe that instead of admitting his financial problems to his wife and daughter and accepting the mess he was in, Foster thought his only option was to destroy his family and the lavish home that he was in um, and on the verge of losing anyway. God, fucking toxic masculinity. I'm not sure if I covered Chris Benoit in my uh, CTE episode, um, but in June 2007, 40-year-old professional wrestler Chris Benoit strangled his 43-year-old wife Nancy to death and suffocated his 7-year-old son Daniel before hanging himself from a weight machine in the basement of the family's Fayetteville, Georgia home. The family's dead bodies were discovered by law enforcement on June 25, 2007, when no one had been able to get in touch with Chris or Nancy for a number of days. Investigators found Bibles next to the bodies of the victims, and a search of Chris Benoit's computer led them to believe that he may have tried to resuscitate his son after killing him. A lot of people who have speculated about why the professional wrestler murdered his wife and child before ending his own life, of course they have. Following his death, scans of Benoit's brain revealed severe damage caused by concussions suffered during his long wrestling career, leading his father to attribute the familial side to these extensive injuries, CTE, yeah. How toxicology, however, toxicology tests revealed steroids in Benoit's system at the time of his death, causing some people to believe he may have murdered his family in a fit of roid rage. However, Benoit's exact motives for killing his wife of seven years, his young son, and himself have never been revealed, causing many to still ponder what caused this successful wrestler to commit such grisly acts. Yeah, we're always going to search for a why, guys, and there isn't one. There's never going to be a satisfactory answer to why. Another Easter killing. On March 30th, 1975, Easter Sunday, 41-year-old James Urban Rupert killed his mother, brother, 
sister-in-law, five nephews, and three nieces in his mother's home in Hamilton, Ohio, with a rifle and two handguns. After murdering 11 of his family members who ranged in age from 3 to 65, Rupert called the police to report the killings, and he was promptly arrested for the crimes. Rupert never revealed why he committed familial side, but people close to the killer and his family said he had a contentious relationship with his mother and brother. At his first trial, Rupert pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but he was convicted of the killings and sentenced to life in prison. However, a mistrial was declared because the courts determined he hadn't received a fair trial in Hamilton, the town in which the killings had occurred. He was granted a new trial in Findenley, Ohio, and in July 1975, yet another jury found Rupert guilty and gave him 11 consecutive life sentences. However, he appealed this conviction and was granted yet another trial. In July 1982, he was convicted of killing his brother and mother, but he was found not guilty of the other murders, and he was given two consecutive life sentences. His 2015 request for parole was denied, and he is currently incarcerated in a Lima, Ohio prison. Ronald Gene Simmons. This one's a little bit different. Over the course of one week in December 1987, 47-year-old Ronald Gene Simmons, a retired serviceman who had served in both the Navy and the Air Force, murdered 14 members of his family, including his wife, children, grandchildren, daughter-in-law, and son-in-law, as well as a stranger and an acquaintance. Simmons's uh, victims ranged in death from 1 to 46, and he killed them either by shooting them or strangling them to death. His killing spree started on December 22, 1987, when he murdered his wife and six children in his Arkansas home, and it continued on December 26, 1987, when he took the lives of seven additional family members when they arrived at his house for a post-Christmas celebration. Two days later, on December 28, 1987, he murdered a young woman he'd been obsessed with, and then he went on a rampage in Russellville, Arkansas, killing one man and wounding several others. Simmons was arrested, tried, and convicted of 16 counts of murder, and he was executed by lethal injection on June 25, 1990, at the age of 49. Simmons never explained why he killed his entire family, although investigators discovered he'd sexually abused one of his daughters, and she'd even given birth to her father's child. Christian Longo, over the course of five days, no, oh, excuse me, in December, 2001, the bodies of 27-year-old Christian Longo's wife, son, and two daughters were found in the water near the family's home in Newport, Oregon, 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 whatever you prefer. Longo's wife and children, who ranged in age from two to four, had all been murdered prior to being dumped in the water. Their corpses waited down to delay their discovery. After killing his entire family by strangling them to death, Longo fled to Mexico, where he lived as a fugitive, telling people he was Michael Finkel, a writer for the New York Times. While investigating the murders, officials learned Longo was a con artist who had gotten himself and his family into serious financial trouble by forging checks and using other people's credit cards, even stealing a minivan from a car dealership by using a fake driver's license. Just prior to the killings, the Longos had moved into a pricey condo that the family's patriarch couldn't afford on the modest income from his job at Starbucks. In January 2002, Longo was arrested in Mexico, and he was extradited to the United States and tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in Oregon. 
Following a standoff with police, officials entered the uh, Fresno, California home of 57-year-old Marcus Wesson on March 12, 2004, only to discover the dead bodies of two women and seven young children in a bedroom that also contained several antique coffins. Because Wesson had subjected his female family members to rape and molestation, the exact nature of the incestuous relationship to his victims is unclear, meaning some of the girls were both his daughters and his granddaughters. Wesson's victims ranged in age from 1 to 25, and investigators believe he shot the women and girls to death because his family was in danger of being split up by members of social services who wanted to remove the children from an unsafe and unhealthy environment. Wesson was arrested and charged with nine counts of murder, and during his 2005 trial, his defense attorneys claimed his daughter, who was found dead at the scene, was the person responsible for the killings. However, the jury was not convinced, and they convicted Wesson of nine counts of murder and 14 counts of sexual assault and sentenced him to death for his shocking crimes. Major League Baseball star Marty Bergen on January 19th, 1900, the 28-year-old Major League Baseball player killed his wife, three-year-old son, six-year-old daughter with an axe in North Brookfield, Massachusetts. And then he slit his own throat with a razor, nearly decapitating himself. Prior to the murders, Bergen who played for the Boston um, Bean Eaters from 19, or 1896 to 1899, had been experiencing hallucinations and paranoia for more than a year, indicating he had probably been suffering from a serious mental health issue for some time without effective treatment. Despite the tragic ending to Burgeon's life and the lives of his wife and two children, he is still remembered as one of the greatest catchers in Major League Baseball history. Because why would we ever wipe out the accomplishments of a man because he did something horrific like kill his fucking family, right? In July of 2016, Memphis was shocked to find out a local mother slashed four of her baby's throats. Shiantha Gardner, mother of five, allegedly cut the throats of four of her young children in a fit that relatives later said was uncharacteristic of the 29-year-old woman. She chased her fifth child, her eldest son, Dallin, around the apartment with a butcher's knife, but he was able to escape. Gardner's ex and Dallin's father, uh, Detrail Clayton, told the commercial appeal that he considered his, his ex a wonderful, sweet young lady. The surviving boy was only seven at the time of the attack. The trial is set to start in August of this year, 2019, for anyone listening in the future. In 2018, psychiatrist Philip Resnick reported he'd come to the same conclusion as a previous expert who'd found Gardner suffered from severe mental illness. Also, it's reported the youngest was 22 weeks old, which is so fucking tragic. I have to now speculate that there's a possibility that postpartum depression could have been a factor. If you think I'm making excuses, just stop. I'm not. I'm never looking to excuse this violent behavior. I am looking to understand it. So let's all agree that there's a huge difference in excuses and explanations. And the difference largely lies in the intent of the person. Okay? Cool. So that said, I wonder if postpartum depression will be presented as part of the defense. 
The medical examiner for the state of Tennessee came back and found Gardner to suffer from a mental defect that rendered her ability to appreciate the wrongfulness of her conduct at the time of the event in question. Morton said in February, in other words, she met the definition of being not guilty by the reason of insanity. Gardner's family declined comment, but Morton said that they are struggling and heartbroken. Quote, everybody's crushed by it. I think everybody understands what happened, and it's going to be our position that it was something that was not in her control and certainly wasn't her intent, he said. Being detained in jail, which is not equipped for people with mental illness, has been difficult for Gardner, Morton said. She loved those children, he said. That's what all the proof that I've accumulated shows without a doubt. Fun family annihilator fact. The psychiatrist Resnick also evaluated Andrea Yates in 2001. Andrea Yates, of course, is the OG 24-7 news cycle family annihilator. Andrea has confessed to the drowning of her five children. Um, Andrea methodically drowned each child in a bathtub. Oh, God. Back to my notes. Okay. So Andrea Yates, uh, July 2nd, 1964 is a former resident of Houston, Texas, who confessed to drowning her five children in their bathtub on June 20th, 2001. She had been suffering for some time with very severe postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, and schizophrenia. She was represented by Houston criminal defense attorney George Parham. Chuck Rosenthal, the district attorney in Harris County, asked for the death penalty in her 2002 trial. Her case placed the McNaughton rules, along with the irresponsible impulse test, a legal test for sanity, under close public scrutiny in the United States. She was convicted of capital murder. After the guilty verdict, but before sentencing, the state abandoned its request for the death penalty in light of false testimony by one of the expert psychiatric witnesses. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 40 years. The verdict was overturned on appeal. I can't find the name of the psychiatric witness, so I will assume it wasn't Resnick. On July 26, 2006, the Texas jury in her retrial found that Yates was not guilty by reason of insanity. She was consequently committed to the court or by the court to the North Texas State Hospital Vernon Campus, a high security mental health facility in Vernon where she received medical treatment and was a roommate of Dina Schroller, another woman who committed infanticide by killing her infant daughter. In January 2007, she was moved to a low-security state mental hospital in Kerrville, Kerrville State Hospital. At the time of the murders, Yates' family was living in the Houston suburb of Clear Lake City. Having been previously diagnosed with postpartum depression and psychosis, Yates continued under Dr. Syed's care until June 20, 2001, when Rusty left for work, leaving her alone to watch the children against Dr. Saeed's instructions to supervise Andrea around the clock. I would just like to say right here that this is exactly the reason that we need massive reform when it comes to access to mental health care. Andrea shouldn't have been left alone. Her doctor said as much. Her husband had to work. Again, not making excuses. I'm trying to understand how this happened to figure out how can it be avoided in the future. In this case, it's pretty clear to me that her mental illness was not under control. In our society, who is to provide round-the-clock supervision of such a person? And who cares for the children while the woman gets the help that she needs? What she did is fucking horrible and unforgivable. 
I won't turn this episode's focus to mental health care. Uh, please see my previous episodes on mental health care and breaking the stigma and taboo surrounding those subjects. <sighs> Rusty's mother, Dora Yates, had been scheduled by him to arrive one hour later to take over for her. So on the day of the killing, Rusty's mom only was um, only arrived an hour after Rusty had left for work. So within that hour, Andrea killed her five children. She started with John, Paul, and Luke and then laid them in her bed. She then drowned Mary, whom she left floating in the tub. Noah came in and asked what was wrong with Mary. He then ran, but she soon caught and drowned him. She left him floating in the tub and laid Mary in John's arms in the bed. She then called the police, repeatedly saying that she needed an officer, but would not say why. Then she called Rusty, telling him to come home right away. Rusty stood by Andrea for years. He even contended that as a psychiatrist, Dr. Saeed was responsible for recognizing and properly treating Yates' psychosis, not a medically untrained person like himself. And yet, Rusty still left his children alone, even for one hour, against Dr. Saeed's directions. Rusty Yates claimed that despite his urging to check her medical records for prior treatment, Dr. Saeed had refused to continue her regimen of the antipsychotic Haldol, the treatment that had worked for her before her first breakdown in 1999. Quoting Rusty at trial, the real question to me is, how could she have been so ill and the medical community not diagnose her, not treat her, and obviously not protect our family from her? He goes on to say he never knew that she'd had visions and voices. He said he never knew she had considered killing the children. Neither did Dr. Saeed, even though the delusions could have been found in medical records from 1999. He did reluctantly prescribe Haldol, the same drug that worked in a drug cocktail for her in 1999. But after a few weeks, he took her off of the drug, citing his concerns about side effects. Though her condition seemed to be worsening, two days before the drowning, Rusty drove her to Dr. Saeed's office. He testified, and the doctor refused to try Haldol longer or return her to the hospital. Rusty added that his wife was too sick to be discharged from her last stay at the hospital in May of 2001. He said he noticed the staff lower their heads as if in shame and embarrassment, turning away without saying a word. The hospital had no other choice due to the 10-day psychiatric hospitalization insurance constraints of their provider, Blue Cross Blue Shield, subcontracted by McGlellan Health Services. Okay. I'm not going to rage. I'm again going to say that mental health care is a sham in the United States. If you or someone else you know is struggling, help them. Help yourself. You are worth it. The National Alliance on Mental Illness can be reached at 1-800-950-NAMI or 1-800-950-6264 or info at nami.org. Serial killers, mass shooters, family annihilators, they're all terrifying. But for me personally, the thought that a perfectly happy family could be wiped out one night, well, it's a nightmare. If I can get on my soapbox for just a minute, I'd like to say these stories highlight the area between personal freedom and liberty and the safety of the masses. How do we ensure that people are getting the mental health care they need without infringing upon their personal liberties? 
If you go back and listen to my episodes on mental health, you'll see that the pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth from lobotomizing people and drugging them into sedation to California starting the domino effect of closing mental health care facilities. Thanks, Reagan. So as a So as a society, we need to decide how to deal with this gray area. Also, this is a message that will fall on dead ears. You don't have to kill your fucking family to spare them the shame of becoming poor. Everything is temporary, except death. It's my personal opinion the underlying issues outlined in the psychology of the family annihilator are and will continue to be exasperated by social media. In the case of the hearts, I think social media shows how the disparity between reality and the cultivated life we put on display can really tear our families apart, quite literally. If you haven't already, listen to Broken Hearts and hear all the lengths that some will go to to protect that curated life. Hearts is spelled H-A-R-T-S, and I believe they just dropped their last episode, so if you're a binger like me, you can do it all in one sitting. As always, sources will be on Twitter at SMTaboo. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening. Oh yeah, and don't sue me. Thanks.